Welcome to episode 32 of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video services here in Princeton since 1999. In this episode, our Princeton Podcast host, Mayor Mark Frieda, sat down with James Stewart, the director of the Princeton University Art Museum. James joined the museum as its director in April 2009, and since that time has expanded the museum's exhibitions and educational activities, as well as its open hours and outreach efforts on campus and throughout the Princeton community. James is currently in the midst of leading a major Princeton University Art Museum expansion that will double the museum's exhibition space within a new building that will be home to the museum's collection of over 100,000 works of art and its more than 200,000 visitors each year. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, James Stewart, for episode 32 of the Princeton Podcast. James, thank you for being with us today. It's a delight, Mark. Thank you. So, you know, James, I think many people are aware that the Princeton University Art Museum is being expanded and is currently under construction. Could you share with us like the objective? What, what, what's happening there? Sure. So uh, we've essentially demolished the old museum and are building a completely new one that will double the size of the museum. And that's motivated by a number of things. One, our collections continue to grow. We want to be able to exhibit more of those. We want to be able to mount more uh, exciting and uh, ambitious temporary exhibitions. We want to frankly be able to welcome more of the public. And we want to be able to balance our academic mission alongside our public mission. Um, in the old building, now gone, that was really a challenge. Uh, that building was built, I think, at a time when Princeton University was less public facing than it has become. Uh, where, uh, in which we maybe didn't see ourselves as a gateway to the campus as we certainly want to do now. That's amazing. That's a great change. Um, so a uh, natural question, how is the project going? So all things considered, uh, given that uh, we had to suddenly close three years ago, as everyone else did for COVID, a year ahead of schedule, um, and then in light of all the disruptions we know of, we're actually doing really well. Uh, we managed to get 65,000 objects moved out of the building uh, on time and without uh, damage to anything, which is a pretty good track record. Um, uh, we hired our construction management firm quite early uh, in the process, partly because I think we all saw a combination of supply chain issues and labor uh, and, and materials uh, issues coming. So we had the great advantage that we pre-bought all our steel and a lot of the other core materials for the building. So they've been stored uh, as needed in warehouses in Pennsylvania, and then they're just brought over week by week as, we're, uh, as they're needed on the site. And basically that means we've been able to largely stick to schedule. Um, and almost anyone in the construction trade that I say that to is surprised. Of course. Because that's course. not the norm of recent times. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that was well thought out, the fact that you have materials and that you bought them and you're not, you weren't buying them in the middle of all the supply chain problems we're having now. Museum construction, as I'm sure you would understand, <clears throat> is incredibly specialized, right? It's just about as specialized as building a hospital um, in the sense of the kind of climate controls you need, security systems. 
so critical that we not only have an architect who's actually <clears throat> worked in the business before, has designed other museums, but also that our contractors have done other museums. Our team kind of came off the uh, expansion of the Philadelphia Museum. And so they really know what they're doing and they've been able to help us stay on, on schedule. That's great to hear. It's pretty exciting, actually. Um, so it seems the art museum has a number of physical locations in town while you're building the, the right. new museum. Uh, can you talk about each of these, you know, what happens at each of the different sites? Sure. So first to say, um, you know, we, we took the first of those sites on actually while the old museum was still operational. And it was a little bit of both forward planning, but also of thinking about the opportunity to go to, to put it kind of simplistically, the other side of the street, meaning to get off campus and a bit more directly into the town. You know, one of the maybe hazards of the museum location is the fact that it's not visible from the street, from the roadway to a passing pedestrian or car. And so having a kind of toehold on, on Nassau Street seemed to make a lot of sense. So that was our first uh, offsite venue, which we call Art at Bainbridge because it's located in historic Bainbridge House, um, one of the oldest buildings in our town. Um, and we've really privileged uh, projects there that focus on um, individual contemporary artists, mostly uh, artists who are getting their first uh, museum exhibitions. Um, so at the earlier phases of their careers, I don't want to say young artists because one could be an emerging artist at almost any age. Um, and uh, that's been you know, very successful. We opened it uh, in the fall of 2019. Um, and of course that meant that it had to close too for a time. Um, but we also realized its limitations. You know, it is a historic building that obviously was not built to be a gallery space. It doesn't have lots of uninterrupted wall surfaces, which ideally you want. And partly for that reason, it limited the kinds of shows we could do there. So, um, particularly in the face of the implications of COVID with, you know, so many, uh, uh hardships for businesses, there were, as you know, a number of empty storefronts uh, in downtown Princeton, and we took on one of them on Hullfish Street, um, uh, which had the advantage of having been built out previously as a kind of pseudo-industrial style space, which actually had the right kind of ambiance for a gallery space. Um, because that's a much bigger space and has those wall surfaces, um, we really uh, have given it over to um, group exhibitions, thematic exhibitions, projects that look at uh, ideas and questions important to our time. So it might be uh, an important look at uh, photography being made by contemporary Latin American uh, photographers or Latinx photographers. Um, it might be as currently uh, a monographic exhibition of a larger scale, um, uh, the first ever for one of the most important contemporary artists from Africa, um, getting his first survey show in the United States. Um, I also think they're both symbolically important um, to the point I was making earlier of being a much more community-facing institution than we were at our origins. Um, I think it's just critical that we're part of the fabric of our community, um, that uh, we want to be in locations um, that overcome what in the retail trade is known as threshold resistance, <laughs> the, the challenge of getting a passerby to actually cross the threshold. So the idea that these are really at street level in storefront spaces, um, I think is both practically and symbolically important. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, and I really just have to thank you for all your efforts to make that jump across Nassau Street and say, hey, 
we are part of the community. And even if you're not real familiar with us, we're making it easy for you right. to find out who we are. You know, and, and in that spirit too, <clears throat> I should probably point out, we have a third downtown venue <clears throat> in the form of a retail store, uh, which we also opened in anticipation of the construction project, knowing that we were going to lose <clears throat> our on-site store. And uh, it's, of course, located at uh, Nassau Street and uh, South uh, Palmer Square. And it's been a great success. Um, you know, when I think back to my days as a graduate student, I don't know that I ever imagined myself as a retailer, but I am a retailer <laughs> as well as a museum director. Um, and I think that too is important. Our, our focus in that store is really privileging regional artisans, um, working at exceptional high quality. So it's a way of platforming some of our regional talent. Um, and I'm happy to say that, especially as more storefronts are now occupied again, it's also doing quite well. Um, so we're really grateful for the community's patronage. Yeah. Well, I think it's on so many levels great that you have the, the art museum has taken those spaces and even the retail space because we saw during COVID there were a lot of openings or vacant spaces, I should say. And now it's good to see that you know most of them have right. been filled. Right. So, um, so James. Can you tell us when you came to the University Art Museum and, and what attracted you to come here? Yeah, I've been director of the Art Museum almost 14 years now. Um, so I think I'm no longer the new guy. <laughs> um, you know, when you go to a very old institution, uh, you can be the new guy for a long time. <laughs> I will say, you know, really what attracted me was the combination of Princeton's capacity and the real opportunity to have an impact um, ours is one of the oldest collecting institutions in North America. Princeton University started collecting art when it was the College of New Jersey in 1755, which is only nine years after the college was founded. And partly for that reason, our collections, which now total over 114,000 objects, are simply extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, uh, I very much recognize that we hadn't really fulfilled our possibilities. Uh, Shirley Tillman was president of the university at the time, and I strongly remember her saying to me that she wanted the art museum to somehow matter to the experience of every Princeton student, not just those coming for into the museum, that is, for specialist purposes, art history students, for example. And that was a very compelling challenge for me, not least because <clears throat> once you do that, I think um, engaging with a, a variety of communities around us is a natural uh, kind of correlation. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, as I often say about Princeton the University, that is, it's a place where you can actually have a dream and manifest it. And that's exceptional, you know, especially in these years when there's been so much disruption and so many challenges, particularly to uh, cultural nonprofits, for example, some of which have closed, unfortunately. Others have had to really curtail their programming. Um, we're able to dream and then, and then act on those dreams. It may take a while. One has to play the long game at times. Um, but uh, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're really proud to be in a place where I think we're, we feel that we can make a difference. That's great. Thank you. So let me ask you a couple of questions about you yeah. instead of the museum. So where did you grow up? So I was a foreign service brat, um, which meant that I uh, uh, moved about quite a lot. Um, India, Thailand, Japan. Um, and uh, I've, I think of home base as Washington, D.C. Um, it's where, you know, my parents parked their furniture. <laughs> 
Um, but I have always kind of said of that, that rather like being a military brat, it, it tends to lead to a couple of different outcomes, either people who never put down roots or people who can put down roots almost instantaneously. And that's been more my kind of way of living. Um, uh, when I moved to Princeton, you know, it felt like home almost immediately. And I'm happy to say that not only do I work in Princeton, but I live in Princeton. Which is nice. So how did you discover your, your love for the arts? So some of that was familial. My mom was an artist. Um, uh, she gave up uh, the hope of a professional career um, for family reasons. But, um, you know, I, I strongly remember sitting at the kitchen table um, when I was probably, you know, seven years old uh, and uh, being taught how to paint a watercolor um, uh, rather ambitiously modeled on the watercolors of Paul Cezanne. That was my mom's idea, not mine. <laughs> um, and I think part of what that meant was that art, and for that matter, museum going, was a natural part of what we did. It wasn't some alien you know, thing. Uh, museums weren't uh, spaces in which I didn't kind of know how to be. And I emphasize that because I think it's really important. It, it informs my view of how critical it is to actually provide experiences of art for young people, including really young people, so that they too can develop a familiarity, a comfort, understand that great art can be in fact part of everyday life, not something that you only do, you know, when you're a tourist somewhere. Um, and uh, I didn't think of it necessarily as a vocation until much later. Um, I was a, an undergraduate uh, thinking I was aiming towards law school and I went to Paris to live, and uh, it changed my, my outlook. Uh, I thought, you know, why make it an avocation? Um, and that meant kind of retooling myself academically, pursuing graduate work, um, and uh, I think probably to my parents' surprise, I've been gainfully employed ever since. <laughs> it's nice when that works out that yeah. way. <laughs> so speaking of... Uh you know, going back to, for your education. So, I mean, obviously you had a BA from somewhere and you have a doctorate of art, but can you explain? Sure. So my undergraduate training was at the University of Virginia, um, uh, a place that, that I, I still have tremendous fondness for, you know, in a more problematic way now than perhaps then, you know, we could simplistically describe it as Thomas Jefferson's university since he was the founder. Um, <clears throat> he's no longer treated as heroically <laughs> as he once was. And I think that's absolutely as it should be to recognize his really profound complexities as a human being. But as you probably know, among many other things, he was a great architect. Uh, and it, it, among other things, was a remarkable place to live and study, um, to be in a, in a place that's a world heritage site, you know, every day and, and both to, in a sense, have it be normalized and yet um, understand it as special as something that kind of could stop you in your tracks. Um, my PhD is from Oxford um, University. Um, I went there specifically to work with a particularly renowned art historian um, named Francis Haskell. Um, I was one of his last PhD students. Uh, so he, he treated me with great rigor because I was one of those people he, he felt was going to either destroy or carry on his reputation. <laughs> Uh, and I still remember when I arrived at Oxford and I had my first uh, meeting with him, 
he advised me to think of the diaries of Horace Walpole as my bedside reading. And so I quickly went to the library to think, okay, you know, I can do that. Only to discover that at that point, uncompleted, the diaries of Horace Walpole, who was one of the great kind of intellectuals of the 18th century, went to something like 45 volumes. And that told me something about how he thought my life was going to be led for the next (laughs) years, that that was going to be my bedside reading. (laughs) That's a great story. So maybe you could share what other museums or universities you've worked at prior to coming to Princeton. Sure. So my first job uh, out of graduate school was briefly the Metropolitan Museum in New York, um, where I had the experience of working in the 19th century uh, European department and rather quickly actually came to discover that I don't think uh, large museums were the right kind of setting for me. Intellectually, curatorially, I really wanted the opportunity to roam around, to not be, uh, in a sense, restricted to a single discipline. And um, uh, the University of California, Berkeley, uh, called me one day and said, you know, why don't you come out and talk to us about uh, being a curator here? And that was really interesting to me. I'd never lived on the West Coast. Um, Berkeley uh, is a great public university, um, a much younger one than I was familiar with, um, uh, and uh, but one that had ambitions. Um, uh, and so I went and worked at Berkeley for eight or nine years, um, rose to the rank of being chief curator, um, and recognized that, among other things, I was pretty good administratively, that I, I, I could, in a sense, curate people as well as art objects. Um, and not accidentally or incidentally, I was also a good fundraiser. <laughs> so my phone started ringing after a while um, with invitations to become a museum director, which in the early days was certainly not something I had imagined. Um, but I, I certainly came to recognize that as a director, you can have a different kind of impact. And I realized that what I've really been drawn to are institutions that need to change. I am not a status quo guy. Um, so my next job was as director of the University of Michigan Museum of Art, which, like what I've said about Princeton, was really under fulfilling its potential. Um, and uh, over the course of those years, I built my first museum building. So uh, what I'm doing at Princeton is, as I sometimes say, not my first rodeo. Right, right. Well, actually, good for Princeton that you've done this before. Well, <clears throat> yes, although I say sometimes that, you know, it can be disadvantageous to know too much <laughs> in the sense that you know where the, where the scars are. <laughs> um, but on, broadly speaking, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, it's made me a far better client, if I can put it that way, um, to an architect, to uh, a, a construction team. Um, you know, I know where some of the real pitfalls are. Um, so, and, and of course, the project we're making at Princeton is much, much larger, much more ambitious. Now, that knowledge that you have from doing it before is right. deeply appreciated by the rest of your team, trust me, <laughs> having done a lot of that work myself. So let me, let me move on. Let me ask you about, you know, uh, you know, I did look into your background a little bit. Yeah. Um, I called the FBI and they, no, but, uh, you know, I, yeah, right. No, I saw that you're one of five Willard I guess L. I won't be running for public office. No, no, we got too much on you. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I saw that you were one of five Willard L. Boyd, Boyd Fellows um, for t- 2011 to 13. 
Can you explain what what that is? So that was a a program that was developed by a nonprofit organization called National Art Strategies, and they received very large grant support to develop a program to bring bring together global arts leaders. And so colloquially, this was uh, called the 100 Geniuses Program. (laughs) Um, Never having thought of myself as an arts genius, it was indeed flattering to my ego. Um, But what was really extraordinary about that experience uh, over a couple of years where we convened periodically at places like the Harvard Business School Um, was to be in the room, not with just other museum directors, but with people running things like the Sydney Opera House in Australia or the Hong Kong Arts Festival or uh, a great zoo in Florida. Um, To really be in the company of, I think, other people who were, if I can put it this way, change makers, um, who had been charged with um, making their institutions maybe matter differently than they had before. Um, An exceptional experience. I mean, if if I look at my life now, it'd be almost impossible to imagine doing it because we're just so busy here in Princeton. Stepping out of my day-to-day work would be tough, but a great learning experience. It's nice how some things come along at just the right time and you're able to take advantage of them. So, you know, James, prior to the closing of the museum, I mean, how many people typically would visit the uh, museum each year? So when I came, attendance really had been kind of static for a long time. Uh, Average attendance was probably about 100,000 a year. And this was, you know, consistent through the 80s, 90s aughts. Uh, And to the point of recognizing that, you know, as I sometimes say, in a region with, what is it, 14 million people, you know, that didn't seem like we had, <laughs> we had reached our maximum potential. And so we really did a lot to kind of reinvent ourselves programmatically. We extended our hours. We launched our first evening hours, which in many ways was, I think, the kind of low-hanging fruit. Um, we did a lot of work to engage students and faculty across Princeton's campus, not just in the humanities. Um, and by the time we closed, we had doubled attendance. Attendance was about 200,000 a year. Um, and that was critical. You know, it, to me, it was super important that we actually showed that the museum could be successful, that it could matter to a variety of communities. I did not want to go hat in hand to, to donors asking them to help support the making of a new museum unless I could basically give them the data that it was necessary, that it wasn't a leap of faith. Um, I didn't want it to be, you know, the proverbial, if we build it, they will come. They were already coming, and that mattered. That's great. So um, the Princeton University Art Museum is what is called a collecting institution. Uh, maybe you could explain what that, what that actually means. So um, many, but not all, museums are collecting institutions in the sense that we uh, collect, uh, preserve, interpret, display, care for uh, works of art. Um, We have an unusual opportunity because thanks to the largesse of past generations, we uh, are the custodians of some very significant endowment funds that can only be used for the purchase of works of art. So um, much as we gratefully receive a number of gift offers, quite a number of gift offers of art every year, um, we're also able to grow the collections really intentionally. Um, to uh, identify gaps in the collections, to um, 
expand our collections as the teaching needs of the campus change. So we've had some uh, really important multi-year initiatives now, uh, not least trying to rebalance the collections. Uh, I'm sure you would understand that historically work by women artists and artists of color was somewhat neglected, certainly not entirely, but uh, to a point where they were disproportionately underrepresented. Um, so we have had uh, an aggressive program of, of acquiring work by women artists and artists of color for at least 15 years now. Um, and as I say, we're able to pursue that really intentionally. But what I also say is Princeton has the capacity to be a both and kind of museum. We can invest in the work of artists and the ideas that they engage with um, who were previously marginalized. But that doesn't mean that we give up the, the canon, so to speak. We can do both of those things. Um, to my mind, the kind of idea of a great university is what informs that view. You know, when a, when a new field of studies comes along like quantum physics, it doesn't mean we stop teaching Latin. Um, you know, great universities can be both and places too. So, um, yeah, actually, I was going to ask you about how COVID impacted the museum, but you actually, we actually talked about that. Um, so let me ask you a different question. So I believe there was a, and it's funny you just mentioned the donations, but I think a major donation of artwork was just announced last month. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how significant Absolutely. it is. Absolutely. <clears throat> so uh, <clears throat> we uh, are, again, very fortunate in having quite a number of art collectors in the greater Princeton University family. And one of the benefits of sticking around for a while is you get to know people and you get to know them more deeply. Um, you know, the average tenure of a, of a museum director in the United States is well less than 14 years. Um, but I, having stuck around, come to recognize that sometimes that's how you have your best impact. In this instance, um, uh, the, this was a collection assembled by a wonderful, extraordinarily kind and generous alum uh, living in Florida who had been collecting uh, really iconic um, mid-century and after modern art, um, the art of the period after the Second World War. Um, uh, we mounted an exhibition some years ago uh, featuring a number of the works in the collection. And what came to us uh, as a, a, a commitment at the end of last year is a group of eight paintings, including works by Mark Rothko, who was one of the uh, most important members of the so-called New York School in the 1940s and 50s, um, Helen Frankenthaler, Joan Mitchell. Um, it has the great advantage of being a wonderfully gender-balanced gift of art. Um, Joan Mitchell is maybe not the household name that Mark Rothko is, but uh, I think one of the absolute great women artists, or one of the great artists of the last 50 years, and that particular Mitchell might be her very best painting. Um, the, the star of the show of the current traveling retrospective of the work of Joan Mitchell. So we're thrilled that we'll have these works uh, on hand when the new museum opens. Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, earlier in the conversation, you had said how you don't want to get locked into like one specific area. But is there an area that you specialize in? Sure. Uh, inevitably, you know, as someone trained uh, academically, I have an area of specialization. And that's what I characterize as early modern Europe. Uh, which is to say 18th and 19th century European painting, British, French, Italian primarily. Um, and that is an area that I've worked in and published in a good deal. Um, <clears throat> my first book, going back some while now, 
was on the way in which 18th century artists led uh, societal change, um, not just responding to change, but leading it and, and developing new ways of understanding the family uh, through, through works of art. Um, you know, what I have to say, though, is by the time you become a museum director, it's really hard to remain a specialist. Um, I'm fortunate in, at Princeton in that I am, have the opportunity to teach. Um, so I kind of toggle between teaching as uh, an early uh, modern Europeanist and teaching as a museum director, um, uh, asking students to think about um, why museums might matter in the 21st century, which is actually the subject of a course I'm going to be teaching uh, this spring term. Yeah, so, you know, I, in, in looking into information on you, you know, you can go on the internet and find all kinds of stuff. But I think you kind of underplayed how much you're published and how much you teach. I mean, I think, so I, 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 I don't want you to necessarily, I'm not asking you to brag too much about yourself, but I think you should really, I, I mean, I think you're published a lot more than you just alluded to. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> you know, no, but I want to, I want you to get credit for so, it. I mean, you're a pretty amazing uh, you know, person. So my academic work, including my published work, um, has, as I say, both been in a kind of focused arena. So that in addition to the book I mentioned, I, uh, did a project on 18th century Venice, uh, that led to, to a book. Um, which I adore doing. I mean, who doesn't want the opportunity to have research needs in Venice? Um, but uh, in, in the spirit, again, of not wanting to be pigeonholed from you know, an early point in my career, I also started writing about then emerging artists. Um, I did the first book uh, on uh, Kara Walker, um, one of the leading uh, then uh, younger African-American artists, um, a, at the time a rather controversial figure um, because of the extent to which he, she was using uh, African-American history as part of her image making. And it was rather divisive within the African-American community. Um, I've written about Betty Saar, uh, who is a uh, kind of a now senior figure in that field uh, of African-American art making, um, uh, working around issues of gender and identity for 50 years. Um, and I'm, I will say, you know, I'm proud of the fact that uh, I was able to be a kind of quick study and immerse myself in fields well beyond what I'd ever studied, you know, in a deep way academically. Um, not least, you know, unusual for someone who's a specialist in the 18th and 19th century to work with living artists as much as I've done. And it's honestly been one of the great joys of my career. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. So one final question. When do you think, just so people have an idea, when do you think the museum opens? Well, that's, you know, the, <clears throat> what's the expression? That's the $20 million question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we're saying uh, fall of 24. Mm -hmm. Um I, I will say that when I'm on the construction site, I think, wow, we have a lot to do. <laughs> so that might be a little ambitious, but that is the goal. Um, you know, when we started this project, um, I really wanted to get through it from start to finish in under four years so that every undergraduate at Princeton would either have had experience of the old museum or the new museum. I think we would have made it except for COVID, um, which added a year onto the project uh, or, the, or the disruption, I should say. So uh, really the, the, the honest answer is stay tuned. Um, you know, it's quite possible, you know, that, that there will be delays. We are not wholly the, 
in, in charge of our own destiny here. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm hoping it's late next year. Yeah. That's well, something for us all to look forward to. If I may, you know, on, uh, say on that note, by the way, Mark, um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that's maybe not so well understood about this project is really what a catalyst it can be for our community and for our region. Um, you know, what we're making is 145,000 square feet of new construction um, that's going to truly, I think, announce us as one of the world's great university-based museums facing towards the public as well. Um, I think it hopefully will be a nice coincidence if our new downtown hotel is able to get open at around the same time, such that collectively we can all be catalysts for uh, the vitality of this community. Um, you know, I, I've lived here, as I've said, almost 14 years now, and I love this town. Um, I feel really embedded in it and, and care about its success. And I think uh, a world-class art museum designed by a globally renowned architect, David Ajay, can be just that kind of catalyst. Um, so that's, that's something I hope that the broader community can be excited about. Yeah, well, I, I, I would think they would be. And I think the impact is, the potential is exactly as you've described it. So, uh, so James, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being here, but I want to thank you for everything you're doing in your role with the University Art Museum. But I also want to thank you just for, I know that you're involved in a lot of things in town, and you just alluded to how passionate you are about the town, and we appreciate your involvement. So, Well, thanks. I'm delighted to do it. It's a remarkable place to be. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the 32nd episode of the Princeton Podcast, produced by the podcast production team at HG Media, providing audio and video production services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. Visit our website at princetonpodcast.com and be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.